Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Time the rest of you can open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're trekking through this book. It's taken us a little quicker than Genesis. If you remember, Genesis took us a year and a half. This is a, a shorter Pauline epistle. It's no surprise that this weekend has been an interesting weekend in the life of America cinema. The book has sold 100 million copies worldwide. The trailer showed at the Super Bowl with over 114 million people watching. It came to Sterling here this weekend. Nobody's surprised at what I'm talking about. The new movie, Fifty Shades of Grey. Now, I haven't seen the movie. I won't see the movie. I haven't read the book. I won't read the book. But it's shocking to me how many Christian women I've heard about that are excited about this movie, excited about this book, really want to see it. But it's nothing less than pornography for women. It's about domination. It's about a powerful man that seduces a younger woman and dominates her for his own sexual pleasure. It's a story, whether you like it or not, of abusive sexual predators. I want you to think about how times have changed. In earlier generations, women loved to read stories about valiant men that would go conquer the dragon. But today, in most of our stories, the leading man is the dragon. He's the evil man that wants to dominate and seduce and control women. Fifty Shades of Grey is just a symptom of our sexually crazed culture. We live in a crazy, messed up, sexually perverted world where this younger generation is growing up with no idea what the Bible actually says about sexual morality. They're growing up with a twisted view of of reality. If I were to go to Sterling High School tomorrow, or Marino, or Fleming, or any of the high schools here, and I were to do an anonymous poll of how many teenagers were engaged in sexual behavior and perverted sexual behavior, I would be shocked. And I'm assuming it would be higher if I went to NJC. It's a symptom of our culture. It's rare today to find a godly young teenager who's made a stand to say, you know what, I'm going to go against cultural norms, and I'm actually going to wait until marriage, and I'm going to be a virgin. It's hard to find a godly teenager, college student, young adult. I dare you to name one movie or one TV show that's not Christian where a couple doesn't sleep together before marriage. You can't find it. It's just part and parcel of our culture today, the sexual confusion of our age. Now, why do I bring up all this information about sexual confusion? It's nothing new. It's nothing new for Paul. Paul had to deal with it back in his day in Thessalonica. If you remember from last week, Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica because Paul couldn't go there to check up on the church. And what does he do? Timothy finds that the church is doing a great job. They're loving one another. They're holding firm in their faith. This church is excelling in a lot of areas, but there's one huge problem. 
There's one glaring problem that this church is struggling with and it stems from the city in which they're living in. It stems from being in Thessalonica. Aphrodite was the Greek goddess of Thessalonica. She was the goddess of love and fertility and sex. As a matter of fact, archaeologists found these little statues buried in in, um, coffins. And they found them in homes where people would actually worship this goddess of, of love and of sex. It was all over the place. Dionysius was the Greek god of drunkenness and orgies. He was very popular in Thessalonica. And many people would go to the temple prostitutes to engage in sexual immorality. Sexual immorality was not only the norm in Thessalonica, it was celebrated. It was encouraged. Cicero, the famous philosopher, lived in Thessalonica in 50 BC. And here's what he wrote to young men living in Thessalonica at that time. He said this, Let not pleasures always be forbidden. Let desires and pleasures triumph over reason. Men in Thessalonica owned female slaves. And since they were property... They could do whatever they wanted with these female slaves. And they often abused them sexually. Demosthenes was probably the most famous uh, person to, to say what happened in the life of a man and his wife. Here's what he said. Mistresses were kept for the sake of our pleasure. Concubines for the daily care of our person. But wives, uh, they're there to bear us children and basically run the household. Plutarch, another famous philosopher, warned against women getting upset if their husbands went out and found sexual pleasure in other places. He said, that's just the way men are. Don't worry about it. And here's the problem. Many in this church in Thessalonica had come out of that culture. They'd come out of this sexually crazed culture of immorality, and they were tempted to fall back into idolatry. They were tempted to fall back into that. It was all around them. They were inundated with this. There was satanic confusion all around them in Thessalonica as to what was reality. And they didn't know any different. I mean, they live in a culture that celebrated prostitution, homosexuality, sexual immorality, uh, all these vices. They just lived in that culture. It was all around them. They were inundated with it. They were immersed in it. They were swimming in it. This culture in Thessalonica did not know any difference. And it's very similar to the culture we live in today. Here's what people say today. You will hear this everywhere you go. Do whatever you feel is okay, and do whatever you feel is natural. Just make sure that when you do it, you're being safe. That's what you hear today. Do whatever you feel, do whatever is natural. Just make sure that you don't hurt anybody and that you practice safe sex. And so when Paul comes along and Paul addresses what the Bible says, the Thessalonians are shocked the same way non-Christians and maybe even Christians are shocked today when you actually obey what this Bible says. You see, we look freakish and weird and repressed and bigoted and archaic and non-enlightened to a watching world when we dare to obey what the Bible says. We just look weird. People are shocked. You you actually believe that? You, You live by that? We've been asking some good questions over the past few weeks through the book of 1 Thessalonians. What's a Christian? What's an obedient church? What do you expect from your pastor? How do I stand firm in my faith? And here's today's question. How do I know God's will for my life? 
How do I know God's will for my life? Now, this question is asked to me a lot as a pastor. People come to me and say, I really want to know God's will for my life, and I know what they mean when they're asking it. They're asking it a different way. What they're really asking me is, Pastor Sean, I want to know God's secret will for my life so he can give me a GPS that I can have my whole life mapped out so I can know who to marry and what college to go to and what career to take. And I want to have this secret kind of unfolded to me in a GPS so that I can chart my future. That's what I want to know about God's will for my life. And there's nothing inherently wrong with wanting to know those things. But here's what I've often found with Christians When God clearly and emphatically and plainly tells you what his will is, most Christians aren't satisfied with that, and they go and they disobey it. And they go off and do their own thing. And they don't want to obey it. They're not satisfied with God's clear directions. So here's here's the issue. Why would God give you more information about your future if you're not willing to obey him and what he clearly teaches? This morning's teaching from the scripture is clear. It's plain. You cannot walk out of this place this morning saying, I had no clue what the Bible says about this issue. God is not speaking between the lines. There's no confusion. It is plain. It is clear. It is emphatic. So what is God's will for your life? Let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. If you've got a copy of God's word, if you've got, I, I, I say turn to, it or, 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 turn to it or turn it on. Turn there or swipe, however you do it. These days. Finally, brothers, chapter 4, verse 1. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrongs his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Four big ticket items here, four big commands, four huge issues that Paul brings to our attention this morning. And he's, he's emphatic, he's clear. He, he does, he's, we're not going to walk out of here wondering what the Bible says. Here's the first issue that Paul emphatically teaches from this passage of Scripture. Here's number one. You should live to please God and not yourself. You should live to please God and not yourself. Paul is giving absolute commands here. He's not giving suggestions. Paul's not giving some suggestions that you can take or leave. He's not giving general guidelines. He's giving commands. Verse 1. We ask and we urge you. Those strong language there, we ask and we urge you. This is a solemn warning that we're giving you. That as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing that you do so more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ. The word that Paul uses there for instructions really means commands. Not suggestions, but commands. And notice what else he says in verse 1. 
This is what you receive from us, how you ought to walk. How you ought to walk. In other words, it's not a question. It's non-negotiable. You don't haggle with God. You don't bargain with God. It's not a suggestion. He says, this is how you ought to live. I'm commanding it. This is how you ought to live. You should live in a way that pleases God. Just as you're doing, that you do it more and more. Continue to live a life that pleases God. This is how you ought to live. But you know what's most important about this? Is the Lordship of Christ. You know, it's interesting what the Westminster Confession says. You know what the Westminster Confession says, the shorter confession? You probably know it. The chief end of man. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Do you know what the mantra of our culture is? The chief end of man is to glorify myself and to enjoy myself forever. That's the mantra of our culture. The chief end of man is to bring as much glory to myself, as much pleasure to myself in the here and now. I want to please myself. But notice twice here in verses 1 and 2, Paul says, We urge you in the Lord Jesus. Verse 2, we gave you instructions through the Lord Jesus. Twice he says Lord. The bottom line here is the Lordship of Christ. It's the Lordship of Christ. So in other words, why should we live this way? Why should we live to please ourselves? Paul says, here's the bottom line. Yeah, you ought to do it. It's a command, but ultimately it boils down to you do this because Jesus is your Lord. He's your master, he's your ruler, he's your sovereign, and you live to please him because he's the most important one in your life. He is your Lord. He owns you. He's the potter, we're the clay, he has rights over your life, he is your absolute Lord. You know what the biggest myths in our culture is this? The biggest myth in our culture is that we are Lord. We are captain. We're in charge. Some of you may be familiar with the poem Invictus by the English poet William Ernest Henley. Written in 1875, Invictus, it's a a famous poem. Let me give you the last line, the last stanza of the poem. See if this doesn't capture the heart of American culture. Here's what he says. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. In other words, what he's saying is, I don't care if there's punishment awaiting me in hell. I don't care if there's a narrow road that leads to life. I'm the one that's in charge. It all boils down to me being the captain of my own soul, me charting my own course. It's all about me. I'm living to please me. I'm living for everything to come to me. And that's the heartbeat of culture. And here's the problem. American Christians are getting poisoned by it. We don't live to please ourselves. We live to please God. Because you were bought at a price. Jesus, if you're a Christian, Jesus Christ bought you with his blood as your Lord. He owns you. Your life is his. Listen to what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 9 through 10. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Make it our aim to please Him. That's our aim. That's our goal. Our goal is to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due, what He has done in the body, whether good or evil. You know, it's good, good life first to live by. We make it our aim. We make it our goal. We make it our passion to please Jesus. 
That should be your life's mission statement. My life's mission is to live a life that pleases Jesus. Not myself, but Jesus. So number one, we are to live a life that pleases Christ, not ourselves. But here's the second thing Paul says. Here's the second big ticket issue. God's will for your life is holiness, not necessarily happiness. Whoa. That goes against our culture. Who cares? Here's the case where the Bible makes it very clear. You don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder. What does it say there in verse 3? For this is the will of God. Any question? Is it pretty plain? What is the will of God? Your sanctification. Your sanctification. Some of your translations may say your holiness. Your holiness. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 14-16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So, so what Paul's saying here is God's will for you is holiness. And you may ask the question, well, what is that? What is holiness? What does it mean? It simply means this. When God saved you, He set you apart. He made you different. He gave you a new identity, and He saved you by cleansing you from the inside out, and now you're, you're uniquely His, and you're different, and you're separate, and your life is to be different. And He started that process when He saved you, and He's continuing that process as you walk the Christian life. But ultimately, His goal for you is to look more and more like Jesus as set apart as holy. To not look like the world around you, but to look like Jesus. That's, that's what holiness is. That's what God's will is for your life. To look more and more like Jesus, to be more and more holy, to be more and more set apart. Paul puts it this way in Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Paul says, you want to know how to do God's will? You don't want to know how to figure out God's will? Live a life that doesn't conform to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind and offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. That's how you find out God's will for your life. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world, or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. What does John say is the will of God? Not to be conformed to this world that's passing away. So Paul here says, God's will for your life is holiness, not necessarily happiness. The Bible never promises you a happy life. Now, it promises you joy, but it never says, hey, live a life that's so pleasing to yourself that you're just going to live for yourself. No, your job and my job as Christians is to live for the glory of Christ. And what Paul does here is he gives three very specific ways this plays out. So in verse 3, he gives the main command, this is the will of God. And then in verses 4, 5, 6, yeah, 4, 5, and 6, he gives three 
ways this plays out. Now, how do you know what he's talking about here? Because the ESV does a good job of translating it. It starts out with the word that, that, that. Now, let me just say something about these three commands. Number one, they're commands. They're things to be obeyed. But they're also in the present tense, which means that they're to be conveyed ongoingly. So, so Paul's saying, here's three things about God's will that you are commanded to do as an ongoing lifestyle. So what are these three things about holiness, about God's will? Well, here's the first that. Number one, you see it in verse 3b. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Number one, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain. The original language does not use the word avoid or flirt with or see how close to the edge you can get without falling off. It clearly means abstain, to not do it. And he defines what we're not to do. What does he say? You should abstain from sexual immorality. The Greek word porneia, we get our word pornography from that. Now, I want to just stop because a lot of times when a pastor says sexual immorality, most Christians just kind of gloss over and think it applies to somebody else but not them. So let me define for you what this word means. Because there's a lot of confusion. What does Paul mean when he uses the word sexual immorality, porneia? Because it means that if you take the Old Testament, you take the New Testament, you take how it was used in the Greek culture, you take all of this together and get a biblical theology of this word, here's what it means. Let me be very clear what sexual immorality means. It is this. Any type of sexual activity or behavior outside of a heterosexual marriage between one man and one woman for a covenant lifetime. So, let me make it even more clear. Let me define it for you. If right now you're not married and you're having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you are committing sexual sin. It's called fornication. It's called porneia. It's called sex before marriage. It's a sin. If right now you are having sex with someone that's not your legal spouse, it's called adultery. You're committing sexual sin. This is This covers what Paul is talking about here. If right now you're having sex with someone of the same sex and you're in a homosexual relationship and you're committing homosexual acts with others, that is sexual immorality. It could also include incest, prostitution, bestiality, and pornography. Now in our culture today, there's some things that Paul didn't have to deal with. But let me tell you how this extends out to what we deal with today. What else is sexual immorality? Well, let me give you some more. Chat rooms, where you go in and have inappropriate conversations with people that aren't your spouse. Inappropriate adult dating websites. Now, I'm not against all dating websites, but you, there's inappropriate ones out there. Snapchatting. You don't know what Snapchatting is? Snapchatting is where you can take a quick picture and then it's deleted and it's, a, it's kind of a weird way of chatting or texting with somebody to share pictures. Sexting. That's sending sexual texts back and forth. Skype or any other FaceTime, any other type of social media where you are having sexual conversations or exchanging pictures or videos. All this technology that we have you know, on our phones has made sexual immorality just explode in our culture. And that's what Paul says here. 
porneia, the word there. So let me be as clear as I can again. The Bible adamantly forbids any type of sexual activity that is not with your legal covenant spouse in a heterosexual marriage between one man and one woman. Now, why do I say that? Because this summer, the Supreme Court's going to make a decision and gay marriage is going to be legal in our land. I'm not a prophet or son of a prophet, but that's my prediction. And so we don't go by what government says. We don't go by what the Supreme Court says. We don't, we don't have a third way. We, we don't sit here. We don't make our decisions based upon the way the culture's blowing. We make our decisions based upon this fixed word. And that's a hard thing for us as a church to stand up and say, and as parents to say, and as young adults to say, saying regardless of what the culture says, this is the will of God. He's been very clear. And to argue with God is a very dangerous thing to do. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20. Flee from sexual immorality. Same Greek word, porneia. Flee from it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Paul says abstain. He says here, flee, run, get as far away as you can from it. 2 Timothy 2.22, so flee, youthful passions and pursue righteousness faith love and peace along with those who call on the lord from a pure heart so so here's the first that this is god's will for you your sanctification that you simply abstain from any type of sexual relationship behavior thought process that's not with your covenant legal spouse in a heterosexual god-ordained marriage god is very clear on that what's the second that Here's the second that. We see this in verse 4 and 5. That you should control your lusts. You should control your lusts. Look at what Paul says there in verse 4. That each one of you know or learn how to control, master his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul says, don't give in to the lusts. Control those lusts. You see, here's the issue. Outward sin starts with inward thoughts and desires. There are root sins. I've spoken about this many times, and there are fruit sins. Fruit sins are the sins that we can see. Sexual immorality, adultery, stealing, lying. Root sins are the sins that are deep within our heart, in our soul, in our mind that are those passions, those lusts. And what Paul's saying is get down to the root because you've got to deal with the lust of the heart. You've got to deal with the attitudes of the heart because what comes from the heart is going to cause you to act out in outward behavior. And Paul says control, learn to master what's deep in your heart. Those lusts that are deep in your heart, those passions, those ungodly passions that are deep in your heart. Jesus even says it this way in, Matthew, in Mark 7, 21 through 23. Jesus says, for from within, out of the heart of man, from within, comes what? What, Jesus? What comes from within? Well, he lists it. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, same word there. Theft, 
murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So Paul says those things that come from within, those, those fleshly passions, those lusts, you've got to control them. You've got to master them. And there's a battle going on. Paul says there's a battle going on in the heart of a Christian because here's what's going on in the heart of a Christian. You've got the Holy Spirit there and you've got your flesh right there and there's a constant battle between those two. And every one of us as a Christian knows what that battle looks like. Galatians 5, 16 through 17, Paul says, I say walk by the Spirit. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh, those lusts, those passions, are against the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And so there's this intense battle going on in the life of a believer to where your passions are welling up within you that are driving you to want to do things that are sexually impure. And Paul says, get a control of it. Master it. Learn to control it. So that's why you need to pray for self-control. That's why you need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give you power. So here's the thing. Don't feed your lusts. Like when you go to the, to the zoo and you feed the animals, if you feed a hungry animal, what are they going to want? They're going to keep coming back for more. And there's ways you can feed your lust. And Paul says don't feed your lust. As a matter of fact, in Romans chapter 13, Verses 13 and 14, this is what Paul says. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, same word there, porneia, and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but here's the key. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So how do you feed the flesh? You feed the flesh by making provision for the flesh. So how do you make, what does it mean to make provisions? It means you make plans. You feed it. It could be by the things that you watch. It could be by the things that you listen to, the situations you put yourself into. But if you're putting yourself into situations that are your, you're making plans to gratify the flesh, Paul says don't do that. Instead, he says put on the Lord Jesus. It's this metaphor of, of instead of feeding the flesh, we are to feed our sights with the glory of Christ. And so we are to see Jesus is more glorious, Jesus is more beautiful, Jesus is more awesome and powerful than any of these sexual sins that are at us. And so we begin to, to focus on Jesus and concentrate on Jesus. And when we focus on Jesus and concentrate on Jesus, then these, these uh, fleshly desires tend to fade away and our focus is on Christ. And you kill those desires by focusing on Jesus, by putting him on. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain, same word there, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Paul talked about that war. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify you on the day of visitation. Here's what Paul is really saying. Don't act like a lost person. Notice what he says there at the end of verse, verse 5. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who what? Don't know God. He's basically saying when you act like this, it's shown that you really don't know God. You're acting like a non-believer. You're acting like one that doesn't know God. So here's the first that. That you abstain 
from sexual immorality. immorality. Number two, that you learn to control your lust. But here's the third, that. That you should not cause other Christians to stumble sexually. Look at verse 6. That, there's the third that, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Paul says don't, don't trespass, don't transgress. Literally there he says don't overstep the boundaries. Don't push the boundaries. Don't step over the boundaries. And, and the other word he says there is don't wrong, don't manipulate, don't exploit. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this as a youth pastor and as a pastor. you got these Christian young couples, either teenagers, college students, and the girl's infatuated with the boy. And the boy is manipulative. And the boy talks her into stepping over boundaries. And the next thing you know, they actually step over the boundary and they go too far. And she's afraid that if she doesn't do it, he's not going to love her. So she's pressured into doing it. And so he manipulates her. And the next thing you know, you've got what Paul says here. He has transgressed his sister in Christ. He's caused her to stumble or she's caused him to stumble. And Paul says, when you lend yourself to exploiting or manipulating or tempting other believers, you are stepping over the bounds. And Paul says, you can fall into sin. You're exploiting them. It's pressure and it's wrong. It's manipulation and it's wrong. And notice what Paul says here. This is where it gets very serious. Very serious. Verse six, and all these things, the Lord is an avenger. The Lord's an avenger. Now, what in the world does that mean? That's scary language. The Lord is an avenger? Now, yes, there are natural consequences to sexual sin. There's STDs. There's unwanted pregnancies. There's built-in consequences to sexual sin. But this is not just a built-in consequence to sexual sin. This is God's justice and wrath and what he's saying here is there's going to be a day of judgment where you will be accountable before god it's not me saying that it's what paul says look at it again look at it verse six that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the lord is an avenger in these things as we told you beforehand and we solemnly warned you in colossians chapter three five through six Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever's earthly in you. Sexual immorality, same word, porneia. Impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which are idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Twice he said it there. In 1 Thessalonians and Colossians, sexual sin that's habitual and that's unrepented of brings God's wrath, which is hell. So the first issue, live to please God, not yourself. The second issue, God's will is for your holiness, not necessarily your happiness. And he gives three that's, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you learn to control your lust, and that you not cause a, another brother or Christian, sister Christian to stumble. Here's the third issue. It's kind of redundant. In case you didn't get it the first time, God's will for your life is holiness, not necessarily happiness. Why are you saying it again? Well, look at what Paul says in verse 7. He says it again, in case we didn't get it. Verse 7, he's going to say it again. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. 
I'm going to say it again, Paul says. So there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality among God's people. Ephesians 5, 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Now here's the fourth one, and this is the one that I'm scared about. I really am scared about number four, but I believe it's biblical and it's a warning that we need to hear. This is where a lot of Christians can tune me out. Here's number four. Here's the final issue. Living in unrepentant sexual sin may indicate that you're not truly saved. That's a hard thing to say, but let me see if I can build a case for it here. I use the word may there. This necessarily, but it may indicate. Unrepentant, habitual sexual sin may indicate that you're not truly saved, that you're not a Christian. Paul brings it to a close here in verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, that's, the ESV doesn't translate it as strong as the original language. Really, the word there should be rejects. Whoever blatantly, willfully rejects what? This teaching he's just had on sexual morality. If you reject this, if you disregard this, if you, you say, this is what God says, but I could care less, notice what he's saying. You're not rejecting man, but you're rejecting God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, what's one of the marks of an unbeliever? One of the marks of an unbeliever says, I reject God. I don't care what God has to say. I'm going to blatantly, willfully reject God. That's the mark of an unbeliever. And Paul says, this is not coming from man, it's coming from God. And if you reject it, you're rejecting God. The second thing he says is God's given you his Holy Spirit. What's one of the marks of an unbeliever? An unbeliever doesn't have the Holy Spirit. Only Christians have the Holy Spirit. So there's a huge warning here. Let me say it very clearly. Habitual unrepentant lifestyle of sexual sin may lead you to hell. It may. Because here's what it's saying. If you take all of these passages of Scripture together, here's what it's saying. If you live in habitual, unrepentant sin, basically you're saying, I don't care if Jesus is my Lord. I don't care. If you live in habitual, unrepentant sexual sin, basically you're rejecting the clear commands of God. You're saying, I don't, I'm not rejecting man, I'm rejecting God, what God said. If you live in unrepentant, habitual sexual sin, basically you're saying, I'm living just like a lost person who doesn't know God. You're basically saying, I, it's evidence I don't have the Holy Spirit. And the most scary thing about it is habitual, unrepentant sexual sin basically says it's going to bring God's vengeance. So God is very clear here. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What does that mean? It means they're not going to go to heaven. Okay, who are these unrighteous that aren't going to go to heaven? Does it mean that you just commit these sins once in a while? No, he's talking about an habitual, unrepentant lifestyle, and he lists it off here. Do not be deceived. The sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's very clear. So let's just ask the question again. Let's just back up from this text and ask the question again. What's God's will for your life? 
Is it a mystery what God's will is for your life? The, the, the mystery, it's not a mystery. God's will for your life and for my life is that we are sexually pure, that we are holy, that we're living a life that pleases him, that we're controlling our lusts, that we're not wronging brothers and sisters in Christ by tempting them sexually, that we're abstaining from all types of sexual immorality, that we are living lives that are distinctly different for the glory of God. Now, let me address something that I know all of you are thinking. That is very hard to do. Nobody wants to raise their hand, do they? I'm not asking you to. That's hard. Why is it so hard? Let me tell you why it's so hard. Number one, we live in a culture, we live in a world that says, do whatever feels good and just make sure you don't hurt anybody. So we've got the world against us on this one. We've got the culture against us. Number two, you've got the devil against you. The devil wants to destroy you. He wants to attempt you. He wants to attack you. So not only do you have the world cultural against you, you've got the devil against you. And guess who the third enemy you have against you? You. You've got your flesh. You've got your passions. So this unholy trinity, if you will, of the world, the flesh, and the devil are coming at you to try to bring you down. But I want to stand before you to say this on the authority of God's word. Don't be discouraged. Don't be alarmed, and don't feel defeated. And here's the reason why. If you hear nothing here this morning, hear this. Jesus Christ died on the cross to conquer sexual sin. Jesus Christ died on the cross to take away the shame of sexual sin. Jesus Christ died on the cross so that he could forgive you, he could cleanse you, he could give you a new life. He can forgive you. And not only that, not only did he die on the cross to, to forgive us of all sexual sin, he rose again. And he's conquered the grave. And so if Jesus can conquer the grave, think about how he can conquer your sexual issue. If Jesus can conquer the grave, he can conquer anything that you have. So let me just say this. There's nobody in this room that's done something so great that the love of Christ can't reach down and save you. So don't think that you're here this morning and think, God could never love me. I've done something so bad. I'm struggling with such deep sin. The cross of Jesus Christ extends to you this morning and says, I can forgive because of my death, burial, and resurrection. So if you're here this morning and you feel hopeless after this message and you feel beat up, don't flee to the cross because Jesus can give you that forgiveness. But not only that, Jesus gives you the Holy Spirit. Amen. And the Holy Spirit lives inside of you to empower you. One of the greatest passages of Scripture I'm going to leave with you this morning is a passage of Scripture that's near and dear to my heart because it speaks about what God does in the life of a believer through the cross. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, there's the resurrection, the great shepherd of the sheep, there's the lordship of Christ. By the blood of the eternal covenant, there's the cross. What does he promise to do? Equip you. Equip you with what? With everything good. To do what? That you may do his will. How? He's working in us. What? That which is pleasing in his sight. How? Through the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So what is God's will for your life? Holiness. How does he do it? He equips you through the power of the gospel in Jesus Christ, working in you to live a life that's pleasing to God. 
But you've got a part to play. You've got to abstain. You've got to learn to control your lusts. You've got to make some wise choices. You've got to set some boundaries. You've got to make some decisions of how you're not going to feed your flesh. You may even need to walk out of this place and break up with a boyfriend or girlfriend. You may need to make some hard decisions. If you truly want to follow a life that pleases God, it may mean some hard decisions here this morning. But I I promise you, by the authority of God's word and the gospel, if you're truly a believer, God will equip you to do that through the power of his Holy Spirit. He's given you everything you need in the gospel to live a life that's pleasing to him. So the ultimate question we end with is this. God has clearly spoken emphatically. The question now is, will you believe it? And will you obey it? So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Father, I thank you for the gospel that tells us that Jesus forgives sin. And Lord, there may be some people in this room today that are struggling deeply with some sexual sin. And Lord, maybe they've just been hit in the face today with that reality. And my prayer, Lord, is that you would minister grace to their hearts to know, Jesus, that your blood can cover a multitude of sins. That you can do a work of redemption, you can do a work of restoration, you can do a work of cleansing. But Lord, I also pray that those would also understand the importance of repentance. It's not enough just to feel sorry. It's not enough just to promise not to do it again. But Lord, repentance means that we change. A different lifestyle. So Lord, if there are those in this room that need to make some hard decisions, I pray that you'd give them the grace to be able to do that. And Lord, thank you that you equip us with everything that we need. By the blood of Jesus, you equip us with everything that we need. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for that equipping Help us to say no to sin. Help us to, to not feed our flesh, to not feed our lust, but Lord, to, to kill those. And Jesus, in all things, would we see you as more glorious than any sin we'd want to commit? Would you satisfy our soul? Would you satisfy the deepest longing in our hearts? Would you be the one that brings ultimate, ultimate joy to our hearts? Lord, I pray for this younger generation. that will grow up in America that we may not recognize. In a place where laws have been flagrantly in the face of you, God. Where Supreme Court justices and social elites in the media and whatever Hollywood or Madison Avenue might push down our throats as a culture when we have a younger generation of pure, holy young men and women that will stand against the tide and live lives of godliness for the glory of Christ. And Lord, they will look like freaks and they will look like idiots to the culture. But on that final day, they will stand before you and hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant. So Father, would you protect, I just pray you protect the kids in this church, protect Protect our own kids, college students, young adults. 
Pray for our nation, Lord. It's going down a path that looks like it's going to be hard to reverse. And Lord, you placed us for such a time as this to be salt and light. And so, Lord, it's not time to retreat. It's time to be salt and light. It's time to stand strong. It's time to be the city on the hill, shining. And what better place to see that is with our youth. But Lord, we also know the youth are the prime target of the enemy, so we pray against the onslaught of the enemy, against our children. Lord, I pray for parents, that they would equip their children with godliness. They would have those tough conversations about dating and relationships and marriage. And Father, I pray for those in this room that may be the victim of someone that's doing this right now, that you'd give them encouragement and strength. And Lord, you'd bring wholeness and restoration and total change. Lord, I don't know what's going on in people's hearts and minds and lives, but I trust you do, Holy Spirit. And so would you minister in a way that I can't? And I trust that you'll do that for the glory of Christ in his name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.